This passage, Isaiah chapter 6, has a, a bit of a mission impossible feel to it. God comes to Isaiah in the temple and he says, your mission, should you choose to accept it, look at verse 9, is to go and tell this people, be ever hearing but never understanding, be ever seeing but never perceiving. Isaiah, go and preach to my people, but know before you even go that they're not going to listen. What a job offer, eh? Would you take it? Isaiah does. Makes you wonder, doesn't it? What has the Lord said to him, or what's happened with Isaiah before verse 9 that makes him say, Yes, I'll take the job. Tonight we're going to think about three things. Isaiah's encounter with God, Isaiah's response to God, and God's salvation. Isaiah's encounter with God. In the beginning, Isaiah comes into the temple and he sees the Lord high and lifted up. And what he sees, we're told, is the glory of God. He sees the seraphs, he hears their singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Now that word glory, the Hebrew word we translate into the English for glory, quite literally it, doesn't, it means something different. It means the weight. See where C.S. Lewis got his title from? The weight of the glory. God is weighty. Compared to him, everything else is, is lightweight. It's insubstantial, it's ephemeral, it's illusory. Um, for those of you who are here over the summer, we grappled with that book of Ecclesiastes, but the, the message over and over again, it's all hevel. It's, it's meaningless, it's a puff of smoke. Compared to the living God, he alone has weight and glory. Imagine for a second you have a, a bucket full of water and you have a, a large stone. You drop the stone into the bucket. What happens? The, the water, some of it at least, spills out. On account of the stone being heavier, it, it, it has more weight, more glory, so it displaces the water. Folks, that's how it is with God. He displaces everything else. Compared to God, nothing else, well, nothing else can compare to the glory of God. God alone is real. God alone is permanent. God alone matters. Nothing matters the way God matters. And that's what we see in this passage, and that's what happens here for Isaiah. God comes, comes crashing into his life, and he displaces everything else. Once he's seen God... The other stuff which I'm imagining seemed important to him before he went to church that day doesn't seem so important anymore. His view of himself's changed, his view of God's changed, and suddenly God becomes everything. We're, we're jumping ahead of ourselves maybe a wee bit. Notice what happens when the glory of God appears. Verse 4, the doorposts and the thresholds shook. There's an earthquake. That's not unusual. 
In Scripture, whenever the glory of God comes down to earth, there's an earthquake. So that's what happens in Exodus 19 on the mountain when God comes and he speaks to his people from the mountain. It it trembles and it shakes. It's what happens in Acts chapter 2 in the upper room when the Spirit comes. The room itself shakes violently. You know when they do the thing in Sunday club with the kids where they do a flame for their heads? They seem to do that every few weeks because I see kids with flames on their heads at least two or three times a year, it feels like, in Sunday club. If we want to demonstrate that to the kids, we've got to find a way to shake the room to show them what it's like when the, the glory of God appears. When God appears, the room shakes. It's always that way. Because when his glory lands, there's a a quake for us. Folks, have you have you experienced that? Have you encountered the true and the living God? Have you had your God quake? That moment when he's overwhelmed you? when he's shown you that you are nothing. And that he alone has glory. Or are you still heavier than God in your own life? Are you still the big deal? Do you dictate your terms with him? Fit him in? wherever you can, whenever it suits. If so, I don't think you've met the living God. By the way, just in case you misunderstand what I'm saying here, I'm not saying that you have to come to church some Sunday and see the seraphim like Isaiah did, all right? It doesn't have to be the same as that. It's not the same for everybody. This encounter Isaiah has with God in chapter 6, Jeremiah is another prophet called by God, and we get his commission story, and it's, it's very, very different. I think the two are different because the two men are different. What God needs to do with them is, is different. You see, Isaiah's a, a proud young man. He's one of the elites Jeremiah, on the other hand, seems to have a bit of an inferiority complex. Whenever you meet him, he's saying things like, I can't do it, I'm only a child. So it's interesting, when God shows up in Jeremiah chapter 1 to call Jeremiah to be his prophet, do you know what he says to him? Stop trembling. Don't shake. And whenever he shows up here in Isaiah chapter 6, he says, Isaiah, you need to shake and I'm here to shake you. God knows us. He knows what we need. He'll reach us whatever, whatever we need. So this God, he's a, he's a Quaker. I don't know if you knew that. We all thought he was Presbyterian, didn't we? Or the guys from a brethren background, we're pretty sure that he's brethren. He's, he's, not, he's, a, he's not any of those things. He's a God who shakes up lives and turns them upside down. He's heavier 
far more glorious than we are. Isn't that good news? You're not the biggest deal in your life. I'm not the biggest deal in mine. That might just help me get over myself. He's a 10-ton truck, and I'm lighter than a feather. And when he comes, there'll be an earthquake with him. Folks, I ask you again, have you met the living God? Has he shaken the ground beneath your feet? All those confidences that you have, all those things that you trust in, has he, has he shaken them up? As your pastor and, and as guardian of my own soul, I pray for all of us that he will, no matter how much it unsettles us. There are things in life far more important than feeling settled and meeting the living God certainly is. We've thought about Isaiah's encounter with God. Let's think for a second about his response. When the, when the Lord appears, the angels cry, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The Lord Almighty. In the Hebrew language, repetitions used to amplify something, uh, to just give it more, moreness, whatever it is, you say it twice and it, it gets to be more. So we don't always say it in English, but there's a, it just increases the intensity. So for example, there's a, there's a funny one in Genesis 14. It's a passage where we read about Abraham uh, going to rescue his nephew Lot and he gets into a battle with uh, the battle of five armies. It sounds like something out of the Hobbit, but it's not. It's, it's there in scripture, Genesis 14. And there's a moment where the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah and their armies flee from Abraham and his men and they fall, we're told, into very big pits. Now, the way you tell somebody in Hebrew that the pits are big is you say that they fell into pit pits. All right, so they're, they're very petty pits. And there are other examples of this in the Old Testament where in the Hebrew where if you want to, as I say, intensify something, you repeat it. Now here's the thing. Nowhere in the whole of the Old Testament do we see a threefold repetition of a quality. Only here. Holy, holy, holy. There's something, there's a category here beyond categories. There's something about this holiness of God that it's just, there's no way of talking about it. It's so awesome. What is holiness? Well, the word that's used in this passage, the Hebrew word kadosh, it's got really a couple of meanings. One is superlativeness, something that's better than, than everything else, infinitely better than everything else. That's the one meaning. And the other meaning is to do with beauty and radiance and, and glory. Or, sorry, beauty, radiance, and brilliance. So what we're left with here, if God is holy, that means he's, he's infinitely better, greater, and more beautiful than anyone or anything else. That's what the angels are communicating here in Isaiah 6 with this song.
The Bible sometimes talks about this reality by saying that uh, people are worshiping God in the beauty of holiness. I remember hearing that phrase when I grew up, going to church. It was just one of those phrases they used in the church I was in as a kid. But it does have a meaning. It means that we worship God not, not for what he gives us, but for himself, for his own beauty. And that's a different thing. That's what these angels are doing. They're, they're worshiping God. They can't help. They see him. They, they see what he is, and they just need to worship him. Folks, I'm going to ask you again, are, are you worshiping God in the beauty of holiness? Have you experienced that before in your life where you love him for, for him, not for his stuff? I, I think, well, I hope you know what I mean. We've met people who, who worship God, who, who seem to be going on well with Jesus. Um, they come to church, they, they play their part in all the activities, they do all that while life's good. And as soon as life isn't good, as soon as they have a sense that God isn't anymore giving them the right stuff, they fall back. They disappear. That, that isn't worshiping God in the beauty of holiness. To worship God in the beauty of holiness means to get to know him, to see him, and to say, I can't not worship you. It's like Job. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Give me your stuff or not, I will worship you. We said a moment ago that we're thinking about Isaiah's response, but actually we've probably spent those last couple of minutes thinking about the angels. What about Isaiah? How does he respond to the Quaker God? Look at verse 5. Had a, a buddy Jesus picture in her mind. Someone's very like us who comes alongside us. Isaiah meets God and says, Woe is me. I'm ruined. I'm done. We said a moment ago that holiness is, is about superlativeness, somebody who's infinitely better. Think about that for a second, even in the human realm. How did you feel as a wee boy growing up in school, the school playground, and you were playing football, and there was the one kid who was brilliant? Made you feel rubbish, didn't he? Or girls, I don't know, Maybe there's the girl in your class and she's just stand out pretty more than, more than the rest and you just feel all our lives we've hated it actually to be in the company of people who are far, far better than us. I wonder if as adults we get even more fragile around this. We, we manage our lives to stay away from people who are better than us at stuff because they make us feel so uncomfortable. Woe is me, we think to ourselves, because I'm ruined. It's like when I hear a brilliant preacher. Instead of saying, Lord, thank you for that, I'm going, ah, I'm rubbish. Isaiah, spare a thought for Isaiah. 
We all struggle when we meet a human being with a bit of superlativeness. He's with the Lord. He's fallen apart. Woe is me. I'm done. Jewish tradition says that Isaiah uh, was from the royal family, that his father was the brother to the king. So, so he was an elite. He's right up there. And what we know from Isaiah, from his book, is that he's a man of artistic, intellectual, communicative genius. How, how do we know that? Well, here's how. If you write a book and people are still talking about it in two and a half thousand years' time, then you know you were smart and a good writer too. All right? Isaiah is a genius. But how does this Isaiah, this young high flyer, respond when he meets the living God? He falls apart. Falls apart at the seams. He realizes that, that all the people around him are, are not worthy of this God, but he realizes that he's among them. I live among a people of unclean lips and and I'm a man of unclean lips. He's talking about his lips. He's a communicator. He's talking about the best part of him, and he says, even the best part of me is, is dirty. It's nothing. He doesn't come saying, you know, I'm, I'm mediocre, I'm rubbish at most things, but I am a brilliant prophet, a brilliant preacher, a brilliant communicator. No. Best part of me, nothing. Folks, you see, whenever... Scripture shows us this time and time again, whenever we encounter the living God in a real way, we start to hate ourselves. This probably explains why we don't want to encounter God. Job says, I repent in dust and ashes. Isaiah here says, woe is me, I'm ruined. What is it Peter says when he meets Jesus? Depart from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. The old theologians called it coming under conviction of sin. It's the only right response to the, the holiness, to the weight, to the glory of the living God. In that moment, I say, I'm a sinner. I'm lost. And I need a Savior. Isaiah's encounter with God Isaiah's response. Finally, for a few moments, God's salvation. I, I love the way this story goes, the way this account runs. As soon as we confess our sins and our need of help, God explodes into our lives. This is still how it is today. Look at verse 6. Then one of the seraphs flew to me. God sends his, his grace like a flash whenever we confess our need for him. And, and here it comes, we're thinking. Isaiah's confessed his sin. God's coming to rescue him. That's not what Isaiah's thinking. Isaiah's thinking, what's that in his hand? It's fire. He's coming to burn me up. Why is Isaiah thinking that? Well, it's because every time in the Old Testament that we read about fire, every time it's about God's judgment. So Isaiah's looking at that angel, and he says, I'm a sinner. 
Here's the infinitely holy God, and he's got fire. He's coming to consume me because it's what I deserve. The angel doesn't wipe him out. The angel uses the fire to to purify his lips. It stings for a moment, but it's good. It's purifying. And then the angel pronounces a pardon. He says, your guilt is taken away and your sins are atoned for. Notice what happens. The second after he confesses his sins, the second after God forgives him and purifies him, God gives him a job. God calls Isaiah to this work. I love that. I grew up with a theology that what I call miserable sinner theology. It says, yes, we're miserable sinners. We need Jesus Christ to to rescue us, to forgive us our sins. And then in this theology, he comes and he does that. He forgives us and rescues our sins. And then we're forgiven miserable sinners for the rest of our lives. No. Isaiah, you're forgiven. Now let's go. I've got work for you to do. I love how Tim Keller puts it. He talks about God approaching Isaiah and he says, Isaiah, I've got a new business going. I'm saving the world and I want a partner. Are you in? That's the invitation. And it's at this point we come back to where we started with this sermon. By the way, God says, just while you're thinking about that job offer, let me... Let me show you the small print, the terms and conditions. It's going to be horrible. You're going to preach and preach and preach all your life, and nobody's going to listen. You're going to be frustrated. You're going to be persecuted. Well, Isaiah, what do you think? Are you in? Amen. Here I am. Send me. What is going on with Isaiah? How can he be so ready to take on such an awful mission from God? Well, it's this encounter that he's had. At the same moment that he realized he was more wicked than he'd ever imagined, he realized that he was more loved than he ever dreamed. The fire of God turned out not to be a judgment, but an agent of cleansing. It's a moment of amazing grace right in here in this story. I want to pause there for a second. If it's true what we said, if the fire of God had always meant the judgment of God, what's going on here? Have we a schizophrenic God? Have we a God who no longer worries that much about sin. He says, that, I used to be like that in the past, but I've got a bit older, I've got a bit, bit more laid back about these things. How does the infinitely holy God allow Isaiah to stand in his presence and not be consumed? Did you know that centuries after these events that Isaiah's recorded for us here that the temple was shaken again? Did you know that there was an earthquake 
because God came down. Did you know that the temple was so shaken that its doorposts and its thresholds that a curtain in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom? Do you know when that happened? Matthew, the gospel writer, tells us, chapter 27, verse 45. From the sixth hour until the ninth hour, darkness came over all the land. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks split. What was happening? Let me remind you what was happening. Before Jesus died, before he went to the cross, he was in the garden. And do you remember what he said there? My soul is sorrowful even unto death. What's he saying? A bit like Isaiah, he's saying, woe is me. I'm ruined. He knew as he looked to the future and anticipated what it would be like to carry the sins of the world before a holy God. Woe is me. I'm ruined. My soul sorrowful even unto death. But for Jesus, there was no angel to come. No angel to show up and say your guilt is taken away, your sin atoned for. Because it wasn't his guilt. It was mine. And because the atoning wasn't something anybody else could do, but he now would go and do it. Jesus Christ was shaken by the judgment of God so that you and I could become unshakable. Folks, that's why the fire can come as cleansing and not as judgment. The judgment's fallen on him. Folks, we're up and running with this book of Isaiah. We've met the man. We've seen maybe why he'd be willing to take on this crazy, crazy mission he's been given. It's because he's met the living God. He's been shaken to his core. His, his whole interior world's been shaken, turned around upside down. He's a, he's a new man with new priorities, a new heart, a new mission. But he's also been loved, forgiven, saved. Nothing is going to stop him now from serving this living God. When you read chapter 6, if we didn't know anything else in the book, we'd say to ourselves, well, it looks like he's taken the job. He said he was going to do it. So we know we got started. Did he keep going? Well, without preempting the, the entire book, we, we know by its very existence, there's the record here of a lot of prophecies given about disparate communities over quite a, a length of time. It looks as if Isaiah took this calling and made it his life's calling. 
He took the job. He preached for the rest of his life. And God was true to his word. The people didn't listen. I kind of wondered whether I should tell you that at the start of a 15-part series on Isaiah. Telling you that the prophet starts preaching but nobody listens feels like telling you the end of the story before we start. Isaiah preached, the people didn't listen, but that's not the end of the story. Look down to the very end of our chapter. Verse 13. There's a seed in the stump. Isaiah, for the rest of your life, this is going to be terrible. Spiritually, economically, politically, you're never going to see this get any better, not in your lifetime. Your nation is going to be cut down. I don't know if any of you have seen it. I spend a bit of time in the forest parks at Newcastle, Tullymore, and Castlewell. Have you seen what it's like when they clear-cut a forest? They come through and they take down 100-foot trees as if they're matchsticks. Just take them down. The Lord says, that's what's happening. I'm going to harvest this forest. I'm going to take it down. But Isaiah, there's something you need to know. There's a seed in the stump. Brothers and sisters, take heart from this beautiful promise in the word of God. We may live in times where it feels like God is is pruning his people back, where he's clear-cutting a forest. I I don't know. In, In my lifetime, it certainly feels like there's a bit of that going on. But look at these promises of God. He's going to create a new heavens and a new earth. Isaiah is going to teach us about that. It's like C.S. Lewis once put it so beautifully. He talked about a time when everything sad would become untrue. Folks, once we've had that encounter with the living God, when the living God approaches us and commissions us, calls us into his work, he's placed a calling in our lives And when we believe him about these promises, that there's a seed in the stump, that there is a new heavens and a new earth, maybe like Isaiah, we'll say to, here I am, send me. Shall we pray? Lord, it seems that Isaiah needed you to break into his life, to put an earthquake under him, to, to show him who you are, who he is, and to call him into a life of, of devotion and obedience to you. Lord, we have said in this uh, gathering this evening, we're not all the same. We're all different before you. But Lord, I pray for us, each one of us, that you will do whatever, whatever you need to do to unsettle us from all the ways in which we're less than 100% running after you 
serving with you. Lord, if there's any part of us complacent, lukewarm, far from you, put a bomb under us, an earthquake to shake us up. Lord, do what it takes to let us see you. Lord, that we too might respond like Isaiah and say, listen, here I am, Lord. I'm all yours, send me. Lord, we thank you for this part of your word. We, we pray you'd be with us this, uh, these next evenings as we look at this. Come and change our lives, we pray, as we hear your true and living word. Amen. Folks, we're going to sing a closing hymn together. Um, just to give you an idea of why, why I think this is a good fit. The chorus of this song, What Grace Is Mine, it says, So I will go wherever he is calling me. I lose my life to find my life in him. It feels like Isaiah had and that encounter with God. There was a life he had to lose and leave behind that he might find a new life that God was calling him to. So I will go wherever he is calling me. Let's stand as we sing this closing hymn.